we were looking for a house and I found I was really engaged in the process. Like I really liked the concept of looking for a home. I found it was creative. And so I ended up setting up the deal for our purchase and I set up a deal for another friend. My partner was like, why don't you consider doing this? You can still audition, you can still act. And I thought, you know, this is not a bad idea. Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to Brown People We Know, an interview show where we explore the non-traditional paths and shared experiences of the South Asian American diaspora. My guest this week is Yawar Charlie. Yawar is a gay Pakistani American actor turned real estate agent. What? I know, I know. Acting runs in his family. Yawar's grandfather, Noor Muhammad Charlie, was a pioneer in the Bollywood industry until the India-Pakistan partition. We talk about what happened after and why Yawar's parents, who were successful actors themselves, discouraged him from pursuing a career in the industry. Well, despite, or maybe thanks to, a failed biology class, Yawar became an actor anyway and built a successful career. He started in the theater and then shifted to TV, where you may have seen him on NCIS Los Angeles, Heroes, or General Hospital. Today, he shifted his career to real estate, and in 2016, he was invited to join the real estate powerhouse Aaron Kerman Group, which sold over $580 million in 2019 alone. I asked him about tips for first-time homebuyers, his relationship with South Asian clients, and whether his former life as an actor came in handy on his two new shows, The American Dream and CNBC's Listing Impossible. Near the end, we dive deeper into the moment where Yawar came out to his traditional Pakistani family, about getting married very publicly at the Grammys, and about names, clothes, and other aspects of identity. This is possibly my favorite episode thus far. I hope you all really, really enjoy it. Yawar Charlie, welcome to Brown People We Know. I try not to admit this publicly, but I do have a guilty pleasure TV show. Selling Sunset. You may have heard of it. <laughs> I just wanted your thoughts. No, no, I've never, I've never heard of that show. No, I'm kidding. I've definitely heard of that show. It's so funny. It's basically, in my opinion, it's like the Real Housewives, but set against real estate. I will say this: Jason Oppenheim, who's the principal of that and the kind of the lead of that show, if you will, he, he's legit. Like he's the real deal. We've done many deals together, and he's great. The rest of that cast, it's, it's definitely everybody's guilty pleasure. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. So the funny thing is, I saw the trailer for it and I started watching the show because I was curious about how you would pitch a 40 million or a five million dollar house. Right. I I just got my MBA. So I was there for business reasons. But like 10 minutes in, <laughs> I was just I got sucked into all the drama. Exactly. And and was it and did it end up being about the house or was it a lot of other things? No, it's the drama. <laughs> it's the drama. for sure. I mean, the houses are cool. You get to see the houses, you know, but I could probably watch like a 10 minute YouTube video <laughs> to see cool houses. It's it's spectacularly shot and it's fun. I mean, you, well, your response is what everybody's response is to that show. It's like it's everybody's guilty pleasure and they love it and good for them. I, I think that's awesome that 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 success has happened for them. So you're on a show of your own. But before we get there, I kind of wanted to start with your family's background and a little bit of the journey getting to America. So people might not realize that you're Pakistani American if they saw just your last name, which is Charlie. But that name is kind of like a homage to your family's legacy. So can you share the story behind it? Sure. So my grandfather was a really famous Bollywood actor, and 
he did one of the first talkie films back in the 40s. And so when he became famous, he was a comedian and he was a physical comedian. And so they called him the Charlie Chaplin of India. And so when he became famous, you know, our last name was Muhammad, which is like Smith or Jones <laughs> for, for an English translation. And so when he became famous, they just called him Charlie. And so grandparents had 12 kids, six boys and six girls. And on the last, the, the birth certificate on all of the names is Charlie. And so that's how that came about. And both of my parents were actors, my brother, my sister. Um, and when my grandfather retired, I was born in Pakistan, but I came over as a, I think I was maybe 14 or 15 months old. And so he brought me with them, with my grandparents. Um, I was kind of like my grandmother's 13th kid with the idea that my parents and everybody else were going to follow. But then my father's career took off and, you know, they were Pakistani but in Pakistan, they have a very robust TV industry. India has the movies, Pakistan has the television shows. And so they were basically soap opera stars <laughs> for, for many, many years. So that's where my, my name comes from. And so my grandfather gave me the name Yawar. And I have to correct people on a daily basis here. But it's all right. It sets me apart. So one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about your family is that your grandpa, Noor, started in India and then moved to Pakistan. And his career was kind of booming up until the, the partition between India and Pakistan. So I'm curious if there's any stories in your family about like how that affected your family. Was that what motivated the move to the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of dramatic, actually. It's kind of what you would, you, no, you know, no pun intended, it's sort of what you would see in a movie very sort of unexpected and my, like my grandfather's kind of fame was sort of at the height of its peak at that time. And so they were informed by someone in the government that they needed to leave immediately. And so they got kind of ushered in on a private plane, but they had to leave everything behind, just sort of like what they could pack. And that was it. And so it was very sort of dramatic. And I don't think his career ever necessarily recovered from that moment. But then again, it was very sort of a tumultuous time over there. I know L.A. has a lot of immigrants and it's just a very multicultural place. So was the move to L.A. intentional because of their career in acting or was it this is just a place to land? No, not even close, actually. So uh, with many immigrants, you know, I'm sure the story is, is not unique. When one kid in the family comes to the States, whatever town or city they go to, the rest of the family goes there. So my uncle Iqbal was the first of the 12 kids to come to the States. And he came here for an engineering degree at MIT in Rochester, New York. So that is the place where we all ended up, Rochester, New York. Literally all 11, except for my dad, came <laughs> to Rochester. And from there, everyone kind of did their thing. But Rochester was the first kind of landing page. I was raised when my grandparents passed away. I was raised by my two aunts and they lived in San Francisco. So when people say, where are you from? I say San Francisco because most people don't even know where Rochester, New York is unless you work for MIT or, or Kodak, rest in peace. It's one of those things that, you know, that's kind of how it happened. And in terms of the acting here in the States, there was, there was nobody involved in the arts. That was strictly back in India and Pakistan. And so as I was growing up, theater was always just something that I did. Acting was always something that kind of came naturally for me, but it was never encouraged, actually. In fact, if anything, it was discouraged by the family because in South Asia, you know, if you're like a, a Chopra or a this or a that, 
I don't want to say it's easier for you, but nepotism runs big in that part of the world. Here, you know, none of that would translate for me. And I don't look like the typical boy next door. So they knew that this path would be difficult. So they, you know, were trying to like push me away from it, but it just kept, kept bringing me back. And then I ended up going to grad school for theater and had my master's in fine arts and was on tour. And it just kind of evolved from there for me. I was so intrigued by that because, like you said, a lot of times immigrants are pushed towards kind of typical careers, but your family has a history of being successful in acting. So I was going to ask if you were almost nudged away. Did they nudge you towards something specific? Was it the typical like doctor engineer path? I mean, not so much an engineer, but a doctor for sure. And I remember my first semester in college, I was talking to my advisor and he's like, okay, so you're pre-med, so you can, you know, you have biology at 7am and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, wait, biology at 7am? Like, this sounds really rough. And I said, well, I really am looking forward to seeing what theater productions they have. And he's like, oh, no, no, you won't have time to do that. He's like, you have to study. You might have time for a public speaking class. Um, And I'm like, oh. And needless to say, I got a D in biology. So it did not, it was not in the cards for me. But I do have a degree in psychology. That field kind of drew itself to me. And I think, you know, what's sort of funny about it is the idea of understanding what made people tick and why people did the things they do and I'm trying to understand the human nature, which is very much something an actor does every day in their, in their work. So every paper I would write was in relation to some kind of character during my psychology studies. And so when I was applying for the PhD programs, my advisor said, have you ever thought of getting a degree in the arts? You, you know, because I'd concurrently been actually professionally working as an actor, but I never, it never crossed my mind that it could be a career. And so at the very last minute, I switched and I, I just applied on a lark to a few master's programs and I got into a really great one. And so then I made the decision to switch. And there are days where I curse my choices. <laughs> I should have got an MBA instead of an MFA or stuck with that PhD. But at the end of the day, education for me was never a waste. And ironically enough, I use all of those tools in my life as a realtor because you're always on. You're putting on a show. You're putting on a performance. You're, you have to understand the psychology of people. You, you are running a business. And so it's very multi-leveled. And so I found that everything kind of came together in a sort of universal way. If you were studying theater, how did you start acting in TV? Because those are two very different mediums, right? They are. So what was interesting is living in the Bay Area, it's again, it's huge, huge Desi population. And so I was working as a commercial actor quite a bit. People may not know this, but at the time, and this is, you know, back many, many, many years ago, they film about 40% of the commercials and what they call industrial commercials, which are not for air, but things that corporations use for training and like those voiceovers that you see on DVDs, or I just aged myself by saying DVD, but you know, you know what I mean? So you could really have a robust career and no one would ever know your name as an actor because you were a voiceover, you were this. So I did quite a bit, but the stage is really what kind of drew me into things. And it was great. I was a classical actor, meaning that I did a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Shaw, a lot of of these uh, writers that were considered to be classics. And it was great. I could read a script or an audition notice, and I knew there'd be me, a bunch of white folks, maybe a black person, maybe. And the way that I look, you know, the first commercial I ever did, by the way, was in Spanish. So people speak to me 
as if I'm I'm Spanish. Right now I have a beard, so I look a little more Middle Eastern, but generally I don't. So I get every nationality under the sun. Like I, there, I've even been to auditions where like, no, 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 we're really looking for a true South Asian. We don't want like a mixed race for this. And I'm like, I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not a mixed race, but apparently I look like the milkman's kid. They're like, well, you know, perhaps his mom or dad was white. I'm like, no, they're really not, but whatever. It doesn't matter. So it just, when I was doing this, doing stage work, you know, you can work as an actor on stage, but you travel a lot. You have to be on tour. You know, you have to sing, you have to dance, you have to act because otherwise you won't, you won't work. So like, I just decided that I wanted a little more stability. I wanted to be in one place. I had a really good friend who was moving to LA from San Francisco. And he's like, let's give it a shot because you might work as an extra or like a one line here or there in TV and film in San Francisco, but everything for the most part is cast out of Los Angeles or New York. So I came to LA and that was, that was sort of that. And on my first audition, I walked into a room and there were 12 people who looked like we could be related. And that they had, I know that sounds strange. That never happened to me before. I'd never seen outside of a cultural or family event where everyone looked alike. And so that was a real kind of harsh awakening, the TV and film scene. There was probably only one brown role at that time. <laughs> so oh my God. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's totally different now. You know, when I was at, when I was professionally acting, there was no YouTube in the way that it is now. No Netflix, no Amazon, no Hulu, no streaming networks. Someone said, hey, do you want to do web series? And you'd laugh. Like, that's not a real thing. You know, you basically had the four networks and HBO and that was kind of it. So you were actually pretty successful as an actor. You were on NCIS Los Angeles. You were on Heroes. I think you played two different roles in General Hospital. So while you're doing that, you happen to kind of stumble across this passion for real estate. So can you kind of share that story? Sure. You know, the thing about being an actor is that you always have to hustle. When you are a certain type and when you look like me, when I was really auditioning like seven to 10 times a week, which is consistent with what a, a what like a working professional actor would do. This is around the time of 9-11, right? And before 9-11, it was, it was one thing, but after it drastically changed, meaning that there were so few roles for South Asian characters. There still are, but there's many more opportunities now than there were before. So you were either the 7-Eleven clerk, uh, you were a doctor, potentially a lab engineer, or you were a terrorist. Like it was those four things. That's all you got. So after 9-11, as you can imagine, there was a huge boom for terrorism in the entertainment industry. And so I would consistently get too pretty for a terrorist. I can't tell you how many times I got that. Too pretty for a terrorist because they think or thought that all of us look like bin Laden living in a cave somewhere wearing our shavar and that's it. And so if you don't present that, I wasn't getting work. And so my partner at the time, we were buying a house and kind of around that time, I got cast on General Hospital, which was amazing because it was just like this. I had such a severe opinion about folks who were soap opera actors thinking that they were really bad. And I realized that was not the case, actually. They're super hardworking. Your script is like, you know, you can't see what I'm doing with my hands, but it was very thick. And a normal television show would take a week to film one episode. Soap operas film an episode and a half each day. So it's like, boom, 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 boom. Their work ethic is amazing. And I realize it's not that they're bad actors. It's like the lines come in their mind, they say them, and then they go on. And they, they don't have they don't wait for you. It's just like this freight train. So I had been doing that. And 
uh, we were looking for a house and I found I was really engaged in the process. Like I really liked the concept of looking for a home. I found it was creative. And so I ended up setting up the deal for our purchase and I set up a deal for another friend. My partner was like, why don't you consider doing this? You can still audition, you can still act. And I thought, you know, this is not a bad idea. And so I kind of made a list of some high powered agents that I knew socially and took a couple meetings and I got a couple offers and I found a mentor that I wanted to work with. And within eight months, I was the top new agent in our office. And so that kind of career happened <laughs> very much by, I don't want to say accident, but it was, it was very sort of like, okay, how can I translate the skill set and popularity and change it into this other career that could be sustainable? And then I found I just didn't have time for the acting. And also the other part of it is that we are in a town where, you know, I chose professions that are outrageously challenging, right? You live in Los Angeles. You can't swing a dead cat without, without hitting somebody that says they're an actor. Saying you're an actor in LA just means that you have a headshot, maybe. But this is the place where everybody comes for that particular dream. With real estate, it's sort of like the de facto profession, right? When people just don't know what they want, don't know what's happening, maybe have a college degree. They're like, mm, I'll be a realtor. I can totally sell houses. This, this sounds good. So I'm like, oh, great. I totally chose two professions that are rather challenging. But what I found is that I really loved it. And I found that there was this amazing moment where I kind of took stock about what I was doing and recognized that all of the skills that I had, you know, a, de a degree in psychology, a degree in communication, a degree in acting, everything gets used on a daily basis, be it presenting to a client, be it doing a pitch be it showing a house, be it negotiation, all of those skills kind of came together. And I was very fortunate that this has sustained what is now almost a 14-year career. And then I always knew that there, that there needed to be that, that sort of creative outlet, that release. And I found as time changed, there became this genre for reality lifestyle television. And that is kind of where I'm at now, where the television and the real estate kind of meet and having that experience in front of the camera makes it very effortless for me. So it sounds like your initial transition into real estate was a little bit of a push away from acting because of all the typecasting and just it being very common in LA, but also a pull into real estate. Very much so. And also just like I said, real estate tends to be sort of the fallback for a lot of things because it is flexible. You can make your own schedule, you affect your own income and you can be outrageously successful, but people don't understand how much hard work it is. It really truly is. And also I'm a very, I'm a very aware person when it comes to people's emotions, which again, this goes back to sort of the degree in psych. It's not lost on me that this is the largest investment that people are going to make in their life. And I take that very seriously. I always say I spend my clients' money like it's my own. I want to make sure that they're taken care of. That's kind of the heart and soul that I put into work. I think people might not realize how technical of a career real estate can be. And like one example is I remember watching Selling Sunset and Brett was talking about the width of the wooden panels on the floor, right? And how that is like an identifier for whether the house is well made or not. You're also staging houses. I know for you, like you hosted a dog adoption event at one of your houses. So it's also like your event planning. 
how did you go about learning all that? You mentioned a mentor, but eight months was like a is a really short period to you know come up on on top at the office. Well, I think that for me personally, it's always been about figuring out kind of who inspires you and who you learn from. There's coaches in every field, and it's easy to spend your money on things that just haphazardly, especially in real estate. And what I found that I, what resonated with me is that I watched people. I really kind of put it out there to, you know, go to open houses and see what people were doing and kind of see like, ooh, that, that kind of advertising works, you know, that kind of advertising is horrible. I so don't want to be this kind of agent. This person is gross. Oh my God, this person is inspiring. So as you go along, you sort of absorb kind of those people who are more senior and advanced than you and figure out, and then you kind of condense those things and figure out how you're able to communicate and speak in your authentic voice and create a business that is very much you. The South Asian diaspora has a lot of discretionary income, that income level is growing. And they also have sort of special needs, I would say. Like one example is I know when my parents were shopping for a house, they had almost like a feng shui type thing where there shouldn't be water here, windows should face in this direction. Do you find that you have a lot of South Asian clients coming to you because you can understand kind of their cultural background as they're shopping for a house? Or is that not really the case? That is very much the case. Something that I think just about race in general, and this will, I don't mean to go on a huge tangent about this because I have a very strong opinion about the lack of representation of South Asians in politics, et cetera. But I think a lot of that is because of our own doing. And that leads into what I'm about to say. Remember how I told you that story about how my whole family immigrated to Rochester? We're not unique. So everyone went from Rochester to San Francisco. San Francisco has a huge South Asian population. Why? Nobody really knows. It probably started off with someone's auntie and their neighbor and their thing from their village and everybody came. But it's super insular. Like you can go to Fremont and it's all desi all day. You go to another neighborhood, you won't see a brown person. Because what we tend to do is cluster. It's very insular. Even here in Los Angeles, you've got to drive to Artesia, which is like about an hour away to go to like what they call Little India. Minorities tend to cluster. They tend to be very insular. They tend to keep with their language. And they want to work with people who, who they feel are like their people, that they can speak the language, that, that, that understand culturally what they're looking for, who pick up on cultural cues, be it religious or... Um, you know, socioeconomic, et cetera. And so that is a big part of, you know, my business because what I offer, which is something, you know, even again, when I was talking about minorities and representation, oftentimes I find that uh, not a fear of assimilation, but there can be a negative connotation about becoming too assimilated or too white, if you will. But in business, what is interesting is that when you have the statistics to back up, you know, kind of what you're doing, even if you are westernized, let's just say that, people respect it because you are working and living and succeeding in a mainstream environment. So that's kind of what I've found. How is selling in the LA market different from other markets? Well, LA is, you know, obviously we're a major metropolis. So first time home buying in terms of price points here is considered to be under 1.5 million. 
Now, for a lot of other areas, when I say that number, they're like, what? And I'm like, no, no, babe, that's just to get in. That's not, this is not palatial by any means. This is like three bedroom, two bath, 1500 square foot house. Let's, you know, that's, that's what we're looking at here. And so the LA market right now is extraordinarily competitive in that first time home buyer market. I have not written an offer for a client in the last maybe 18 months that hasn't been in multiple offers and not just multiples. We're talking like 30 offers, 40 offers, 20 offers, 10 offers, and all above asking. Like you have to, you have to literally go in with your best foot forward tens of thousands, potentially a hundred thousand dollars above asking just to get a counter offer. So that's what's happening in the LA market right now. Most indicators, if you're really kind of looking, seem to show that the housing market in general, in most markets, is very robust. And I personally think it's a good thing because these are long-term investments that only help neighborhoods and communities and tax. It's a whole trickle system, right? So that the tax dollars from the real estate taxes help social programs and help pride of ownership in neighborhoods, et cetera. The other flip side of that coin is that it does preclude people from getting into the market. They just have to be a little more creative about what they're doing. A lot of the listeners of the show are young professionals in the process of buying their first house. And so, well, first of all, I, I'm just curious what tips you have for first time home buyers. But also, a lot of us, we saw our parents come here and like save up for a really long period of time. And they went through this whole struggle. And then we're in this unique position where our first or second job out of grad school, which our parents helped us pay for, we're getting a really high income. And then it's like, oh, I want to move to LA or New York right away. Like, do you think it's a good idea to enter those markets as a first time home buyer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do it now. Do it now. I sound like one of those like mattress salespeople, but <laughs> you know, here's the situation. Okay. There's never going to be a better investment. And I say this with the caveat that, of course, there's the stock market, there's crypto, there's a lot of other investments. But for the most part, generally speaking, there's never going to be a better investment over a long-term period. And by long-term, I mean about five to seven years than real estate, period, full stop. Other than a, a market correction here or there, which is, which is few and far between, real estate appreciates. Real estate is a tangible asset. Consider real estate to be a forced savings account. That instead of putting $3,000 in an IRA, you're putting it into a tangible asset that has a tax benefit. It has a tax write-off. It psychologically gives you a certain feeling that I own this space. And it's a forced savings account, meaning you're not just burning that money on rent. That money is going into equity. That when you turn around, now you have a tangible asset that you can sell, get a very large chunk of money that short of winning the lottery, most people don't have. And then you flip that into another asset. So I would encourage everyone and anyone who is listening to this, no matter where you are, buy a house, get into the market, even if it's something small, because you will find that there are many benefits, like I just mentioned. And I'll give you a quick little story. As an actor, nobody tells you anything about the business side of things at all, at all. And the, if I were to, you know, tell my younger self something, it would be don't ignore the business investment side of acting because you get a bunch of money and you think, Ooh, okay, I'm going to go to Europe and find myself. No, 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 no. Take that money and put it somewhere smart, you know, but no one tells you these things. When I bought my first house, it was 
I had just done a pilot that didn't take off, but I had a chunk of money. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to buy a house. So I bought my first place. And I remember at the end of the year, the person doing my taxes was like, oh, it's really good that you did this. You just got a $32,000 deduction on your taxes. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, how does this work? And he's like, yeah, you know, at the, you know, the time, the deduction for interest on mortgage loans was a certain place. And I was like, holy crap, no one ever told me that. Why didn't I do that? And so for all people, I say, you know, there's so many benefits to home ownership. Get in. And right now, interest rates are historically outrageously low. They're never going to be lower. If anything, most indicators say by the fall, late fall, they're probably going to go up a little bit. Yes, real estate purchase prices are very robust. High, you know, I don't even want to say overpriced, but they're priced the way that they are. You can get in depending on your profession. If you are in the military, for example, you can get up to a $2 million loan with 0% down and no mortgage tax insurance. Like that's crazy. If you can document your income, you can get what's called an FHA loan and get in for 3.5% down. If you are a stated income person, you can probably get in for 10%. There's so many ways. And again, as a caveat, I'm not a mortgage broker. Definitely consult with a mortgage professional in your area or reach out to me. I've got a great one. But what you want to do is get in. That's my advice. If you're trying to go your parents' route, nickel and diming and saving, it's going to take a minute. I bet if you sit down with a mortgage broker and a budget, you can probably afford a little bit more than you think. I guess, what do you say to, because the number one thing that I've heard when I've thought about that is always to consider the maintenance cost and how that might offset the benefit compared to renting. So the thing about maintenance, it's very property specific. So if, for example, you are in a condo, you have your HOA fee, which is your monthly association fee that you pay to an association that manages the, the, the building. For a condo, you don't have any maintenance. You don't have any maintenance. You just don't. And for single family homes, of course, if you buy a money pit, meaning a fixer or an older home that looks like it needs work, you need to be prepared that there's going to be maintenance for it. I'll use, again, myself as an example for something. So we bought a house, uh, a second home, and we wanted a certain way. And you know, if I'm not going to be the one who's skimming the pool, guess what? I have to pay for someone to do it. If I'm not pushing a lawnmower, which I'm certainly not pushing a lawnmower, I got to pay someone to do it. If I'm not mulching this gigantic property, someone's got to do it. So yes, there are maintenance costs, but there are also the flip side of that, which is you can do a lot of this stuff yourself. And um, everyone's different. I always say, don't get in over your head when it comes to real estate. A, number one for a mortgage and B, for a property. Like if you're like, oh yeah, this is a fixer. I can do it myself. Please think about that. Make sure that you know you can do it yourself. Make sure that you have help. Make sure that you talk to vendors and get estimates because what you don't want to do is get into a situation where you're over your head. But generally speaking, yes, there is maintenance with a single family house. Does it have to be cost prohibitive? No. So I want to circle back to what you're saying about starting in real estate. And now you've kind of hit this groove where you found a place where you can combine real estate with your kind of creative acting career. You're on this show now, Listing Impossible, and the show centers around Aaron Kerman's division of the Compass Real Estate Group. And the premise is that you're selling homes that have been on the market for a while and are not selling. 
my first reaction to that was, why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. why, would, <laughs> why would you be the agent trying to sell these hopes? Someone's got to, babe. Someone's <laughs> got to. If not you, it will be someone else. Yeah, that's true. First of all, I guess, did you wind up in Aaron's group because they were doing the show and you wanted to be a part of it, given your acting background? Or was it more like you wanted to work with Aaron and then the show opportunity happened to come along? Like, what was kind of the sequence of events there? So Aaron Kerman and I have been friends for many, many years socially. And, you know, the the higher end real estate world is really small. And so we would, like I said, we were friends. And so he had been asking me to join his team for a while. And I kept saying no, because I didn't feel the need to leave where I was before. But, you know, when you read those magazines about those agents that are selling 50, 60, $100 million homes, you're like, where do these places even exist? Well, there's a list of those agents and Aaron's always like near the top of that. So when I looked at my career, uh, this is maybe five years ago, I said, you know, I kind of want to bump up to that next level because I was doing really well in what you would consider like bread and butter listings. And what I mean by that is under two and a half million dollars. So I, I'm like a, I'm like a volume boy. So I'm like a turn and burn. Right. But I never was able to kind of really truly capture those marquee listings. Those like $10 million listings and above. And I wanted to be in that conversation. But when you're going up against agents who have been regularly selling hundreds of millions of dollars and you're sort of a standalone person, even if you have an in, the odds of you getting it are slim. And I wanted to be part of that conversation. I wanted to learn what it took. Again, I'm a, I'm a big proponent about learning things. And I wanted to learn how those big fish play. And so... Aaron invited me again <laughs> to join the team. And I did. And it was just wonderful. I love going on listing appointments with him. I, I learned so much. And even now, because our styles are so different. They're like night and day. I'm like buttoned up proper statistics suit. And Aaron rolls in in like a t-shirt, a latte and jeans and wows them. And it's just amazing. Like I might not even say two words <laughs> in a listing appointment. And I'm like, all right, well, we got it. So. Well, nah, that's when I take over. And so that that was the motivation for joining Aaron's team. And I was on Aaron's team years before the show even came about. When the show came about, again, as an actor and as someone who's doing real estate, I do get invited in to meet for certain shows. I won't mention them by name, but a lot of them are on a particular network. And um, I knew that like I, that's something I kind of wanted to do, but it wasn't it wasn't a priority. It wasn't something I was necessarily going after. And then also, I'm very sensitive about reality television because of my background. I'm not interested in being a table flipper. Like I was called in a few times for a very popular show on, on Bravo. And uh, I, I was just like, you know, I'm not your guy. I literally said that. <laughs> really quick. What is a table flipper? What I mean is like, you know, like a Real Housewives, like a Teresa like flips the table. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Like, like dramatic, basically. Christine. Exactly. So if I am going to put myself in that performance arena, I'm going to do it as an actor. I want it to be scripted. I'm not going to, because otherwise I'm presenting someone who's not my authentic self. So why bother? Like, why bother? Like that's, I'm not, I'm not that kind of business person. I'm not that kind of human being. So why bother? So there was never the opportunity that came along that I was like, Ooh, yeah. You know, there were a couple things that I was up for that I didn't get. I had done a couple pilots. There's, it's funny. I did a pilot for a show called marriage or mortgage. 
and I did this like years ago and I'm flipping around and my friend's like, Ooh, you've been replaced by a Southern white woman. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I look on Netflix and there's a show called <laughs> Mortgage, and sure enough, replaced by a Southern white woman. But um, anyway, that's neither here nor there. So when Listing Impossible came about, it was this concept that was really true to life. Our team is the number one selling luxury team in Los Angeles. We're the number two in California. I think number in the top 15 in the United States in terms of volume. Last year, we sold almost $750 million worth of real estate. So what you see on the show is real. And oftentimes, these sales are difficult. They come with challenges. And not everything is a walk in the park. So none of that was made up. What you saw is exactly what you got. I was at the end of my listing appointment for the biggest listing I ever had, which was $22 million. I did everything I could to sell it. And it didn't end up working out for me. My storylines on the show are not very, very happy, but it's true. My other episode was a season finale episode. And there are clients that I call my energy vampires. And I learned major lessons from that listing. And as you can imagine, it didn't work out in that situation. But the reality is the show is very true to life for what we go through in a high-end market. And the biggest compliment I've received is that agents who watch that show, no matter what market they are in, no matter what price point, they're like, oh my God, I totally get it. I totally get it. my client was the same way. And they were selling a $200,000 house. Because at the end of the day, if something is challenged, if a seller is difficult, those are universal things. Real estate in general seems really tense because a lot of it seems to start on verbal handshakes. And then the closer you get to a deal, you don't know what the other party coming out of their houses they're looking at. And there's just a lot of uncertainty, even when you're getting close to signing. So how do you handle that stress and uncertainty? Well, for me, it's very simple. It goes back to something I said earlier. I understand if this is your first house or your 10th house, if it's $400,000 or $14 million, it matters the same. And I'm very aware that this is the largest investment someone is ever going to make in their lifetime, period, full stop, for the most part, again, unless they buy some crazy company. And it's emotional. Real estate is emotional. I am going to into people's homes, into people's bedrooms. I mean, the stuff that I've seen, I can't even, probably can't even use the language or, or mention here on, on you this can. podcast. <laughs> I've, I've read about it. <laughs> but it's, it's insane. But it's also, it's a very intimate, emotional experience. And you have to be respectful of that and acknowledge that. And so I'm very good at that. I'm very good at negotiation. I'm very good at understanding people's feelings. And so I take that with me and I adjust and adapt to each situation, which I think the good real estate agents do. Because you're not just a real estate agent. You're a friend, you're a therapist, you're you know, you're the business consultant, you're, you know, they're astrologists, you're you're all of it. It's all rolled up into one because it's a very intimate, intense experience for the time that the process is happening. You also kind of hinted at this when you're talking about Listening Impossible and you're saying your storylines on that show weren't as happy. But one of the things that I find really intriguing about real estate is like some people make an annual salary of like 40000 a 100000 whatever it is. But with real estate, you get that in spurts, right? Like you might get nothing for a while and then you sell something. It's like, boom. How do you celebrate when you sell a house? Well, I should say I'm married to a financial planner. So 
he already is like, okay, so how much are you making on this? And he's like, okay, so this is what's going to 401k. This is what's going into the Roth. This is what's going to, I'm like, ugh. I'm like, hopefully there's a slush fund for us to buy something fun. But, but here's the thing. When you do this as a profession, I mean, what do I do to celebrate? I take the client out to dinner and I give them a beautiful gift. To me, that's celebration. I don't necessarily buy myself something. Though I will say recently, I didn't get a listing and I was feeling a little emotional. So I went out and I bought an outrageously expensive candle. Like really, it's like the most expensive I've ever purchased just because I was feeling sad for myself. But generally speaking, you have with real estate, and this is a huge pitfall. There's very few industries that I know of where you can, you can work your butt off and things could fall apart in the 11th hour. And then those six figures that you were going to make on this transaction disappear like that disappear. Early in my career, I cannot tell you, there's this one month where it was like one of the biggest transactions I was working on. I had a whole bunch of stuff going on and everything fell out of escrow, like everything. And it was all circumstances beyond my control. And in the span of maybe 48 hours, I lost like $140,000 just like that. Now you count on that. Like you cannot help, but and I've learned since I never calculate commissions. I never, you know, unless Jason asked me specifically, babe, how much are you making on this? I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to know. I just figure like I'll get paid at the end. You know, the universe works it out. But, you know, there's very few professions that I know of that you that you experience such a, a up and down situation. And so you have to be prepared for those things. There might be a time period where you do really well, and then you won't sell something for four months. So you have to think about long-term. You can't just go, oh, wow, I made you know $300,000 in three months and do crazy things because the next three months, who knows? Hopefully it continues, but it might not. And I have a business coach who's very good about some of that stuff because I will go in, you know, as with anything, you know, real estate is cyclical and it goes in waves for people, or at least as it does for me. So it will be the kind of situation where I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'll talk to my coach. I'm like, I'm really freaked out. Like I don't have anything in the pipeline. And she's like, stop acting like a single mother of two working a double shift at the diner. You're just fine. She was like, this happens to you. She goes, but the next time you come sit on this damn couch, you're going to have three deals in escrow. So I don't want to hear it. And I'm like, all right, you're right. Fine. Okay, fine. So that's how you plan. You have to be thoughtful about the money you make. You have to think about taxes because taxes don't come out. So there are nuts and bolts things that real estate agents who are independent contractors must think about financially in this business. So, Yawar, between acting and real estate, you've built quite an audience. We've had a few gay South Asian men on the show. and Wait, there are, there are others? There are others. What? What? <laughs> I know at least two. Fake news. Fake <laughs> There's news. There's two. But their process up until coming out was a little bit tumultuous because, as you just hinted very clearly, there aren't there isn't much representation there. But when they actually came out, the process was relatively smooth. And so I'm wondering how that compares to your own experience, especially because you're a public figure, right? So there's maybe extra considerations going into, I guess, being a a gay public figure at the time. So. That, that's a very interesting question. And I think that anyone, you know, anyone from, from any culture, it doesn't really matter. I think that you kind of, you experience this bit of sort of not trauma, but worry about how this news is going to come about. 
And so for me, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, right? So when I say that, people are like, oh, it was probably a piece of cake for you. I didn't meet my first openly gay person until I went to college, as strange as that sounds, or at least that I knew of anyway. And mind you, I went to a Jesuit all-boys school my whole life, right? So when I say that, people are like, ooh, tell me stories. I'm like, I got nothing for you. It was like the most idyllic childhood on the planet. But my point in saying that is that even though I grew up in a place that was very accepting of everything, you know, our family went to gay pride as a child because it was a city cultural thing that everybody just went to. And when I discovered that my path was going to be a little bit different, it was not dramatic by any means. It was like I was doing theater. I was dating women. One day something happened. I was dating a boy and it just became very free flowing. And I didn't, I didn't put a label on it. And I was, again, I was immersed in acting. I was immersed in theater, right? So when I went to grad school, and you've been to grad school, you know this, in my program, there were seven people in my program. I was in one building. Like if you weren't an actor, if you weren't in the show, I didn't know you. That was my world. And then I went from that straight into professional acting. So all of those environments were very fostering of gay people. They just were gay, bi, whatever you wanted to call it. But culturally, different story, right? Pakistani, Muslim, strict Muslim family, don't drink, pray five times a day, right? So this is going to be, this is different. But I, would, I just never represented anything but me. That's the thing. I never pretended to be anything that I was not. Granted, every time we go to like an Eid celebration or someone's wedding, I got pawned off. Like I was, you, you name it. Like everybody was trying to get me married off. Like it was insane. And then the TV stuff started to happen. And then that got turned up a notch because like, ooh, you know, Charlie's grandson is an actor too. And oh, oh, he's single. And oh, he just finished, you know, college and blah, blah, blah. So it became this whole thing. And I'm finally, I'm like, oh my God, like, it, it just got intense, but I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm, I was okay with that because I knew that it wasn't serious for me. So it wasn't until I was in Los Angeles and, you know, my family from San Francisco would come visit me quite a bit and I probably shouldn't fully share the, the, all of this story, but I think it's kind of funny. So people of color don't get hotel rooms, right? So it doesn't matter if you have a one bedroom, two bedroom, your whole family is staying with you, which is exactly what happened to me in LA. And I'm a very light sleeper. So I took half an Ambien to go to sleep. And if you've taken this drug, the point is to go to bed. But if you stay up, buyer beware, because it will make you loopy and crazy and all of this stuff. And it's not recommended. At least that's what it says on the bottle. So I think we're going to bed. I, I pop my half a little pill so I can fall asleep. And suddenly a deep conversation starts. I don't know why or how around sexuality. And I don't remember the nuts and bolts, but I do remember telling, you know, coming out to them. And then I fell asleep and we woke up the next day and nobody mentioned a word about it. Like a typical, great South Asian family. We moved right along. Like there was no problem. That's why I think South, you know, most like, South Asian and like Southern families have this in common. They just smile through it like there's no problem. Well, flash forward to many years later, I'm with somebody, you know, my family's met them and their big thing was when once we did get into it, because we were buying a house together and I was moving in. So I was like, we have to have this conversation yet again. And it did not go great. But I said, look, here's the deal. This is who I am. So take it or leave it. I was very calm about the whole thing. And they're like, well, we just were sad that you know, it became a whole religious conversation. And I said, listen, 
I'm a good person. I'm a good son. I support my family. I'm a good community member. I'm pretty sure that God does not have a problem with this. And if he does, I'm sure he'll say something when I get there. Like I basically left it at that. And then I got married on this little television show that 150 million people across the globe happened to watch. And literally the first phone call from my aunts, and I call them mom to mom, they're sisters, but they raised me. They said, well, everybody knows now. And the funny thing is, you would not believe the wonderful reception that we got from the Grammy Awards. Probably because, I mean, not to, not to sound full of myself, but if you were going to have an example of an interracial gay marriage, we were, were a pretty good representation. So everybody was thrilled. And also because it was on TV. So suddenly it gave this validation, like it was like, ooh, it's a big deal. And not in a bad way. And social media has just turned the volume up on that. Incredibly so. And so the response that we got from, or I got in particular, because I wore a traditional South Asian outfit. And there's a photo of Jason and I that a photographer snapped that was the cover of the LA Times. Like it's the cover of everything. Like if you Google Grammy gay wedding photos, our photo comes up first before like Queen Latifah, Madonna, Macklemore, and Ryan Lewis. Like it's mind blowing. But I got such a wonderful response via email, via DM from people all over the Middle East who were like, my mind was blown. This is illegal where I live. It gave me hope that maybe someday I could do something like this. And in the community and my family, it was just accepted. They accepted Jason like they love him to death. Literally that happened and we went to an Eid celebration like the next month. And everybody just was like, oh, they got married on TV. It was nothing of like, oh, they're gay. And if it was, certainly no one's going to say it to your face, which is the other South Asian trait. So who knows? But as far as I know, it was really accepting and it has not been an impediment in my life in any kind of way. And with the family in Pakistan, they're all in because, because of social media, they're able to see all these things. And again, there's this validation that comes with, I understand my fortunate place in life. I get it. Like I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have a great career. I'm doing something that I love. And it's in a public forum where people get to watch and see. So I get that not everyone has my journey, but I'm very fortunate that mine has been a really wonderfully positive one. That's amazing. And I'll stick that photo in the show notes so people can see it. So earlier you had mentioned that there was a fear. Some people have this fear of being too white. Was there ever any sort of concern about, okay, you're gay, but you're also not marrying a fellow Pakistani or anything like that? Oh, that's funny. No, not at all. I think that, no, that actually never came up. Even though I will say that there was someone that I dated once who was in the military, uh, very briefly, and he was a linguist. And so he spoke and wrote Urdu. And so I was like, uh, you speak better than I do, like way better. And he's like, well, can't you read and write? I'm like, no, not at all. And he's like, well, that's a shame. And I was like, this is crazy. I can't believe that he can do this. I'm like my family would love you. So funny. Uh, but no, there's never been, there's never been that. No, they're not that progressive. <laughs> Nobody's gotten to that. Ooh, I've got this boy that I need you to meet. No. So one other thing that I wanted to ask you about is like you're Pakistani American, which is kind of unique in and of itself, given that, you know, most of the diaspora is Indian American. When I spoke to some Bangladeshi guests, they told me like they would have to explain to people like what or where Bangladesh was because everyone 
assume Bangladesh was just India. I'm curious if you've had a similar experience being Pakistani or if people generally know what slash where that is. You know, no, not so much. It was more like if someone said, oh, where are you from? Pakistan is not the go-to ever. And quite frankly, I, like I was saying earlier, you know, I always get mistaken for other ethnicities. I get like Mediterranean quite a bit. I get Spanish all the time. But when I'm with other Pakistanis, like, you know, it makes sense. But I think people's, again, it's just about representation of what people see on TV. I don't, I don't find that I have to explain. But when people guess, I'm like, no, a little further east, you know, then eventually they'll get Pakistan, you know. But I don't, I don't take it personally, nor do I find that I do explain, you know, where Pakistan is on a regular basis. And again, post 9-11, because of their relationship with the United States militarily, people know where Pakistan is now. They didn't before. You mentioned that when you got married at the Grammys, you were wearing a traditional dress. What are some of the other ways that you display Pakistani heritage today? And is it important for you to retain that? For me, it's outrageously important to retain that Pakistani South Asian heritage. A lot of that comes from growing up when you have a name like Yawar. You know, all I wanted when I was a child was to have a quote normal existence, meaning I wanted to be white. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be as bland as everybody else. I didn't like the name Yawar. It got hacked regularly and I never corrected people. Like to me, nails on a chalkboard are when people call me Yawar, like I want to die or Yamar or Yawar or something crazy. I'm like, ah, can't take it. So I always correct people. But back then I never did. Um, And when we would like have like Eid celebrations or celebrations around a cultural event, you know, I'd be wearing my shalwar kameez and I hated it because people would say, oh, you're wearing pajamas in the daytime. Like I remember that as a kid distinctly. And it wasn't until I got older, it wasn't until I would say like after high school that I said, you know what, F this, I need to embrace who I am because the color is not going away from my skin. Like I might as well embrace it. Now it couldn't be more the opposite. I'm so all in culturally where any red carpet event, any formal event, any wedding, anything that you dress up for, I am always, always in a Shervani, I'm in a Kurta, I'm giving you Desi fashion all day. Because it's important. People need to see that. You know, if I'm on a red carpet somewhere and, and photos get snapped, you won't see me in the same Kurta twice, or you won't see me in the same Shervani twice. Like, I love it. And I love being able to, like, someone's like, oh my God, where did you get that from? And I'm like, oh, well, there's this design shop in Artesia and they made this for me. And so I love that because people need to see that our culture is beautiful and rich and historic. And we need to see representation and we need to be able to see people who have unusual names who are okay with that. Like I correct people. I don't mind. Like when people say, how do I, how do I pronounce that? I say, yower, like power or tower, flower, shower, like a director I worked with once. He's like, yower. Oh, like shower. And I'm like, oh my God, I never even thought of that before. So I use that all the time. And yes, my last name is Charlie. So people are like, well, what is that? And then, you know, all that is to me is a lead in for a really wonderful story or a really wonderful introduction. So for me, it's very important to represent in any way that I can, that people can see and go, oh, that's really cool. I, I like that I saw that. I like that, that, that someone is representing their culture in a non-forced way. I love that. I actually use Suraj like fudge or budge. So I also <laughs> go the rhyming route. Was there 
something specific that kind of made you have a sense of pride in that culture? Like what, what kind of flipped that switch? There was. So, and it wasn't just necessarily about the culture. It was more about a life switch, um, which was when I was a senior in high school, we went on a senior retreat and it was the year of the big earthquake in Northern California. And we were about 10 minutes away from the epicenter. And we had just done an exercise where all these people in our life wrote these very intense, deep letters to us. And we got to open and read them. And basically, it was telling us how important we were to the world and how how our gifts uh, made the world a better place and kind of how we made it. They, it, was just, it was just amazing. I still have these letters today. And something clicked in that moment where I felt like this is a call to action for me. This is express yourself, be your authentic self, and go for things that you normally wouldn't do. I was a very shy kid. I never wanted to stand out. I just like, I was popular, but I was friends with everybody. I just, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be more than that. And something happened after that moment where I was like, I'm going to do all those things that I've always wanted to do. Like I immediately joined theater. As we know, South Asian hair is what they use for all the wigs and the weaves. And so I became a hair model. Like I did stuff like I'd never done before. And that continued into college. I just, I wanted to make bold choices. I wanted to I never wanted to, like, I had this thing in college where, like, I never wanted to miss things. Like, I, I barely, I feel like I barely slept or I slept in the theater more than I did in my dorm room because I wanted to just not miss a moment. And that just kind of created something for me. And I, I can't really explain it, but it was just a moment where I felt like life is too short. You need to be you. You need to figure out what that authentic you is. You need to figure out what your voice is and not try to be somebody else. And that's, the exact same way that I feel like in uh, business, I had needed to find kind of my authentic voice to make myself what makes Yower special and not try to mimic another person's business model. I love that because it's like a personal realization. It's not something about Pakistani culture that maybe flipped the switch, but it was something about you stepping into yourself and embracing all sides of your identity, I suppose. Yeah, it was very, it was very much that. And the good thing is culturally that came along for the ride. Yawar, I feel like you're full of interesting stories. I could keep going, but we're coming up on time. So I'm just going to ask where people can find you or watch Listing Impossible or any of your other projects that you're working on right now. Sure. First of all, thank you for the interview. I really love, I love this and I love that we're able to connect and talk about cultural issues because oftentimes this doesn't come up in interviews. So this is such a, a pleasure to talk about. But you can find me at yowercharlie.com, and that's Y-A-W-A-R-C-H-A-R-L-I-E.com. I'm on Insta, at yowercharlie, Twitter, Facebook, all the things. If you want to watch Listing Impossible, it's on all the streaming services, on Peacock. You can even, you know, some of it's on YouTube. And if you want to see more of my work, I'm doing a show called The American Dream as well. And you can find that on my YouTube page, you know, at yowercharlie. And I always push people towards my website, which is yawercharlie.com and Instagram as well, because it's a true representation of who I am. And it, it's, you get everything, you get my life, you get some real estate porn, you get some good cultural moment. I kind of give it to you all. So amazing. Well, thank you for coming on. Thank you for your time. I look forward to hearing the, the full interview. Hey, it's Suraj. If you enjoyed today's show, check out the show notes on brownpeoplewenow.com for more content around today's guest. If you want to support the show, 
share this episode with a friend, or follow us on Instagram at BPWK Podcast. Thank you. Talk to you soon.